when I was in college, there was a, a kid whose name was Jimmy, and Jimmy was a, a high school senior, and he, he tragically lost his mom to uh, cancer. And I was um, over at his house with some of his peers, and he was uh, really broken up over that and just seeking some comfort, I think, from his friends. And to be honest, there was, sadly, there, there was no indication that Jimmy was a believer. There was no indication that he was churched, though I assumed that perhaps he would profess being a Christian because of the way that he chose to honor her, and which was a little unusual. Uh, again, he's a high school senior, but, and this is, a, you know, several, several years ago. This is probably 2006 or seven or so, and the way that he chose to honor her was to get, do you guys remember those Live Strong bracelets, the, like, kind of silicone rubber band kind of bracelets? He, he bought, like, 200 of those and passed them out to all kinds of different people. On one side, he had uh, her name or her initials or something in the date uh, of her passing, and the other side said, uh, today an angel got her wings. And the, the, it's, it's sad, right? It's, it's sad simply because he lost his mom, but it's also sad because of how incorrect that statement is. For a lot of reasons. Um, it sounds good, it, it sounds spiritual, it, it even sounds, you know, in a way, God-honoring, but sadly, that is a, a cultural coping mechanism that that when people die, we, we become angels. You know, the Bible never says that people become angels when we die. Angels are a, a beautiful creation by God, but humans are created with a distinct beauty of our own. You know, the Bible never says that angels are created in the image of God. The Bible says human beings are created in God's image. We are co-heirs and inheritors of salvation. The Bible doesn't say that about the angels. We're given rescue when we die if we're in Christ, not wings. And one is greater than the other. Our culture and, and the Jewish culture 2,000 years ago have something in common, and that's that angels were a part of their worldview but were improperly understood. For us, it's different, but for them then, they were objects of, of worship, and they ascribed too much glory to angels, and, and they ascribed to them worship, which wasn't really due to them. And so the author of Hebrews steps in and simply is correcting that. And along a lot of ways that he's going to say that Jesus is superior, he says that Jesus, is, the Son, is superior to the angels. And he reframes it and recalibrates it and says, the angels aren't to be worshipped, the angels are worshippers. They aren't to be served, they are servants themselves. The Son, rather, is to be worshipped. The object of all of our affection the superior one. And the greatest thing, church, that we can learn from angels is their instant, unquestioning obedience to God's commands. So today, it's going to be a little different that we're going to study a subject matter that may be a little confusing, but I, I think that as we walk through it together, we're going to come back saying at the end of our time how superior the Son of God really is. Let's check it out together. Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 1, okay? And we're going to go through verse 14. We won't look at verses 1 through 3 primarily, but start in verse 4. But beginning, let's read in verse 1. It says, Long ago, <clears throat> at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now focus for the rest of our time, looking at this passage here, on the glory of the Son, okay? He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Sounds like the song we just sang. Through whom also he created the world. Also sounds like the song that we just sang. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now starting in verse 4. 
having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is a Jewish audience in a Greek-speaking world. We talked about that last week by way of, you see a lot of these, if, if your Bible may have indentation and some of these things look separate from the others, those are quotes from the Old Testament, but they're not just quotes from the Hebrew Bible, they're quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Do you have that map that we used last week by any chance? If so, just throw it up there, I don't know if it, okay. So the, the Jewish world would be in the bottom right-hand corner of this map. That's where what we know as Israel to be. But all these red dots and even the yellow dots above and below, those are in the Greek-speaking world. And the people to which this letter is addressed, and I would say it's more than just a letter, but more like a sermonic letter, a sermon letter, the people that will receive this are clearly Jewish background people. There's so much Jewish language that we see here. Hebrews is what it's called, right? But they're in a Greek-speaking world. And so what we see is the intermingling of the Greek speech and the Septuagint of, of the, the things that are being quoted, the Greek Bible, but also a very Jewish heritage, talking about angels and many other things that we'll see as we go through. You can take that map down. Thank you. We have two Testaments. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, separated by around 550 years or so. But in the time between those two Testaments, you can call it the intertestamental period, we have well-documented Jewish literature that they would know outside of the Bible. And some of this literature tells of an intense cultural focus on angels, sort of what we would phrase as the glorious unknown. They're hard to know, angels are, but they are glorious in their own right. For the Jews, it was believed that their law had been given to them by angels, messengers of God. Many Jews considered angels to be both God's messengers as well as Israel's protectors. They looked at angels as those who would come as God's army or his host to rescue their nation. I think it is because of this fascination that the author of Hebrews begins this sermon or this letter by recalibrating these Jewish believers' understanding of Christ, the Son, in relationship to angels. And he does it, as I said a moment ago, with several references to their Bibles, seven of them to be precise, five of, from the Psalms, one from 2 Samuel, and one from Deuteronomy. It is extremely noteworthy, before we get into the notes, I'm going to put something on the screen behind me in a second, but it's extremely noteworthy that of all the things that our author warned against, and he's going to warn against several things as we go through this letter, he begins with their intense and unhealthy focus on angels as harming their worship of the Son. So I don't want you to miss 
the fact that he leads with this means that it was probably a pretty big problem. What he wants them to see is that they must keep the sun superior, S-O-N, the sun superior. And I think that that should be our aim this morning as well. We're going to do that, and we're going to see that in a couple of ways. Number one, that he is superior according to his inherited name. He's superior according to his inherited name. That language that I have put up there is very precisely chosen. What we see here is before teaching the work of Christ. We'll get there. We'll talk about the work and this priestly stuff and about a sacrifice. Before talking about the work of Christ, this author, the author of Hebrews, teaches rather the person of Christ. Before he talks about the work, he talks about the person. It is because of who he is. He has done what he has done. And he begins with the person of Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. 3 because it sort of gives context. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's a big one. The exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, four, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That word for superior is a word, a Greek word that's used 25 times in this book, in this letter. And it's the word that will translate greater or better or superior. 25 times, which is why we kind of titled the whole time in Hebrews that word, greater. And what we see here is that this author is emphasizing the superiority of Jesus. He says in verse 4, become as much superior to angels, he says, as so as being not, not a, um, a way of describing, but rather saying the grounds. So the reason he is much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. In other words, that word as says these are the grounds. This is the reason why he is so superior. The reason why is because his name is greater than theirs. Notice it says it's an inherited name rather than a received name. The title is not a gift or a favor given to the Son from the Father. It is a right of authority shared with the Father. The author then uses the first two scripture references that we're going to see here to back up this claim that Jesus has given an inherited, not just, not, not even given, he has an inherited name because of who he is by authority. And the author here is going to phrase it in two rhetorical questions, which I think is a real creative way to begin. He says, for, so here's my reasoning. He says, for, to which of the angels did God ever say? Here's quote number one. You are my son, today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm 2, 7. Or again, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So the question is, and that's from 2 Samuel seven fourteen. The question is twofold. He's saying, which of the angels has ever been given such a high praise? Did, did the father ever say such high and lofty things about angels? The rhetorical question obviously is, answered no. These first two references were often a tight pairing in Jewish tradition. It comes from something called the Florilegium, I should say. It's a collection of Jewish texts from the Torah, their Bibles, once again, about the awaited Messiah. And so these two passages, again, that's Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14, would be a lot of times tied together in their uh, context. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying here is using an example that they would understand and say, those two things that you recognize as a Messiah, they're said about Jesus. They were never said about the angels. 
In each context of those two passages, the author is speaking of the messianic king in the lineage of David, whose kingdom would see no end, whose authority would extend to every nation, who would not only be a king, but also be God's son. It's not, by the way, when you talk about son, maybe we think about the word son, you think about the relationship. The emphasis is not on the relationship, but what is owed to him as son. A son is in their context, the heir. That's what it says here in chapter one, the heir of all things, right? If he is the heir of God, he is the heir of all things. And for Jesus to be the son is not to say that he is, you know, family with the father. He is that, but the emphasis is that he is the heir of God, the heir of all things, calling him son, and which is what we see here, right? You're my son, today I've begotten you, I shall be to my father, and he shall be to me a son. It echoes words from the heavens at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. The author's point is this, that angels, don't miss this, angels are glorious, but they were never ascribed the glory of the son. On the contrary, he goes on in verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that's the son, he says, let all God's angels worship him. <laughs> not only do they not get the ascribing glory that the son gets, he says, no, no, not just that, but they're to bow to the son. Not only is the comparison no contest, it's an unnecessary comparison. Angels shouldn't be worshipped at all as they themselves are worshipers. It's not a contrast, it's a compliment. The reference here in verse 6, again, you see another quote there from their Bibles, as I said. This is from Deuteronomy 32, 43. It's a reference to Moses' song of praise in that passage. And in context, the angels are worshiping God. And so the author's logic is, if the Son is the exact imprint of God's nature, if he's the exact radiance of God's glory, and if God is, in Deuteronomy 32, 43, worthy of angels' worship, then guess what? The Son is too. Just making a comparison there. It says here in verse 6, and again when he brings the firstborn into the world. Now you may read that and say, firstborn? Wait a second. Does that mean that Jesus is a, is a creation? No, it doesn't mean that. Jesus is not created by the Father. He is pre-existent. He is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was there in the beginning. In fact, it says that creation would not have happened apart from him. He spoke all things into being. He himself is not a crea uh, creation. He himself is the creator. So why does it say firstborn? Firstborn is not a chronological title. It is a positional title. He's speaking positionally, not chronologically. Just this week, you, you may have, I think it was this week, I don't think it was last week, I think it was this week, that Queen Elizabeth II had passed away. Did you guys hear about this? Listen, I, I'm only 34 years old. Uh, that's less than half of her reign. It's amazing. I mean, Queen Elizabeth II passed away. She aged 96. Her reign as monarch was 70 years and 214 days. It's the longest of any British monarch ever. The second longest verified reign of any monarch in history. Now, the one who will succeed her throne is a guy named King Charles, now King Charles. He is the firstborn. Now, he is her firstborn, the way that I am the secondborn. He is the firstborn in chronology, right? He is the chronological firstborn of Queen Elizabeth. And so he has received his position, right, as firstborn by way of his chronology. Does that make sense? Because of his lineage and succession, he's the first, he has received the title of 
first. What comes with being the firstborn? The, the heir. He, is the, he has the reign, right? So when you think about that, it is, and this is, I'm trying to make this distinction important. Chronology dictates the position in that instance. That is not the way it is with Jesus. Chronology does not dictate Jesus's position. Countless people were born before the Son took flesh, right? How many people were born before Jesus was made flesh? A lot of them. He is firstborn, not due to chronology, as he had no beginning, but due to right, as the preeminent, the first son. In other words, he is first in line to inherit all things. He is the firstborn, not because of chronology, but because he's the heir. You see what I'm saying? So it says in verse 2 back then, in the last days he spoke unto us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. It's not a matter of time, but of position. The point I'm trying to make here is this, that people may fail to ascribe glory due his name. They may even wrongly ascribe it to angels, as we see here, but the angels know what's up. You hear me? People may fail to ascribe glory due to the Son. They may even ascribe it to the wrong entity, being angels, but the angels themselves know they ain't the ones to be worshiped. Revelation 5, 11 and 12, which we read at the beginning of our service today, says, Then I looked, and I heard, this is John speaking of his vision, and I heard around the throne, notice that, around the throne. Where's the son? He's on the throne. Around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many, what? Angels. Numbering myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels know what's up. Take their lead. I don't think anyone in this room struggles with the worship of angels. But listen, the principle is broad, and this is it. The Son will not share glory. Jesus will not share the glory that is only due his name. The Son did not step out of glory into sin, live into skin, live a sinless life that ended in mockery, cursing, spitting, shame, abandonment, and murder. He did not die the death that you deserved, bearing your sin and the weight of its punishment. He was not putting to death the grave in his resurrection, only for you and me to turn around and bow, not to the Son, but to the altars of our own making. He didn't do it for that reason. He did it to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings. He didn't go and, and do those amazing things for us to turn and bow each day to the altar of social media. He didn't do those things. We would turn around and wake up the next morning and bow our knees to popularity or entertainment or our pride or our ego or football or beauty or work or sleep. Continue to fill in the blank. Jesus did not go and do all glorious things that you would go and ascribe glory to another. And you can say that he's superior. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your time will be also. There your affections will be also. The creator did not step into his creation that you may worship the creation and give what you have left over to the creator. We can say all we want that he is superior but based on your speech habits, your financial habits, your time management, your screen time, does he reign superior in your life? 
Forget the wordplay. Does he reign? Does he receive the glory? He's superior according to his name. The second thing that I want you guys to see is that he's superior according to his reigning position. He's superior according to his reigning position. That word reigning should bring to mind some kingly things, which is what we're going to see here in just a moment. This author, having already quoted a messianic psalm, a messianic prophecy from 2 Samuel, and a prayer of their hero Moses in Deuteronomy, all in the package of rhetorical questions emphasizing the name of the Son, the author is now going to turn to the splendor of angels, which I think is pretty neat, what we're going to see here. The goal isn't to diminish God's glorious servants, but instead to amplify the Son. He's not saying that angels are worthless. That's not the goal here. It's not to tear down the beauty of angels. Angels are beautiful. God's creation. The goal is instead to keep them at a glorious position, but lift the Son so much, so much higher talks about angels next look at verse 7 of the angels he says he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire this is a reference from psalm 104 verse 4 the emphasis of that psalm is that god is superior over his creation that he wields creation as he will he mentions winds and fire and everything else from water to the skies to the mountains the psalm contains it all and all of it says that creation bows to God, the creator. It's a really cool, as we see in verse seven, a cool description, a glorious description of angels. But man, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, doesn't that read kind of neat? He makes angels, winds, ministers, another word of saying servants. Deacons is the word in Greek for that, by the way. His servants, ministers, a flame of fire. Angels are spiritual beings that can, according to scripture, take on many forms. And we see this, and it's so hard to talk about, and my goal is not, by the way, to, to create some big, and expound some big doctrine of what angels uh, do and say and look like and mean, but we're just gonna just chisel just a little bit off that, that iceberg, okay? Angels take many forms according to scriptures, and they can be seen in many ways. Maybe the one that's most familiar to us would be the form that's sort of human-like. When uh, we see this, even in their human form, they. They appear before somebody, and what do they oftentimes say? Fear not! Fear not! Why? Because even in their sort of human-like form, they are a sight. By the way, when you say fear not, that doesn't just mean that uh, you startled somebody, okay? They are terrifying. When angels appeared in front of people and they said, fear not, it was because they were knocking people to the floor in absolute terror. What do they look like? What do they look like? Mary's pregnancy announcement, which was the first ever gender reveal, by the way. Mary's pregnancy announcement, you see the angel appear in human-like form to her, fear not. When the angel appeared to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, you see an angel appear in a human-like form and say, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy. At Jesus' empty tomb, we read of two angels sitting there by the entry to the tomb and they said, what are you looking for? He's not here. He's risen. Fear not, they said. Well, I should say, they said fear not first, right? Because of what a terrifying sight. It clearly must have been. But those are the human-like forms. We may not oftentimes read the prophets, but they give us a different idea of what angels, at times, forms they take on. 
The Bible describes them sometimes as a, a cloud, a light, which is what glory means, a light shone around, or a flame. But there were at times that the prophets saw visions of angels, and they wrote about what they saw. Are you guys ready to get a little weird? You ready? It's going to get a little weird. Just bear with me for a moment. Uh, this is something that I saw on Reddit. If you don't know what Reddit is, I'm just not going to go there. But I saw something on Reddit that was an artist's depiction of their very best effort of depicting what the Bible's description of angels looked like. And uh, if they're young eyes, this is actually kind of scary, so maybe they just think about that. So I, I just debated on whether or not to even show you this. Do you feel the tension rising? I'm doing it on purpose. Ezekiel describes a, a cherub. You guys ever heard that word? Cherubim. Cherubim would be plural, cherub. Um, it's not the, the fat, chubby little angel that you see on your Hallmark cards, okay? The, the, the Cupid, that's not a cherub, all right? No, Ezekiel describes a cherub. It's a human, ox, lion, eagle combination. Faces of different, different directions. Human, ox, lion, and eagle. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, a cherub is described with a flaming sword that's waving back and forth, protecting the garden, lest any human that is tainted by sin ever eat of the garden uh, of the tree of life ever again. Throw that first picture up there. Here's a cherub. This is a zoomed-in picture. The human in relation for size comparison is very, very small, okay? But listen, is that uh, embellished? Maybe a little bit. But I just want you to see these are not creatures with little tiny wings and halos, and they got big, cute smiles and pearly white teeth. This is terrifying. These are the glorious angels. Ezekiel also describes in chapter 1 of Ezekiel a form that has a lot of wheels, and eyes. Go to the next one. Um, and there's the human in relation to the size that this artist has, has depicted. Again, uh, terrifying, right? I mean, really shocking to look at. And again, is this embellished? Maybe some. I just want you to see the glory. I mean, see the splendor. Well, you never seen anything like this in your life. If you did, what would you say? Fear not would not work on me is what I'm trying to say, Okay. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he describes a different creature. Again, a messenger of God called a seraph, plural being seraphim. Go to the next slide, please. This is seraph. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah describes this creature with six wings. They sing, holy, holy, holy. You guys remember that? One of the creatures takes flaming hot coals and puts it on his lips and says, be clean, you of unclean lips. Fear not. You can take those down. Thanks, Greg. Guys, angels are scary if left to bad power, right? But they submit to the power of the God who loves you and cares for you. As, as sort of terrifying as that, and again, embellished, maybe some, but the visions that the prophets described look more like that than like the fat baby on the Hallmark card. I say that to say this. Angels are glorious, that was a glorious image, if you didn't notice. Amazing sight, was it not? Can you imagine seeing that in front of you? Fear not. A glorious sight. But listen, the reason I wanted you to see that with your own eyes, I couldn't describe that. <laughs> Could I? Here's the reason I wanted you to see that. As glorious as that picture is, listen, the one who made them is more glorious. The one who created them is infinitely more glorious. And that's what the author wants us to see. Angels are mere messengers 
that, a mere messenger of the mighty one they serve. And that's where we go next in verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 says, so, so of the angels, he says, he makes angels as winds and ministers a flame of fire. Amazing speech, right? Verse 8 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He didn't say that about the angels. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparisons. He's quoting another messianic psalm here. Talk, uses words like throne, scepter, kingdom, anointed, oil. Those are all king things. He says that his throne is forever and ever. Notice, by the way, in verse 8 when it says, your throne, O God, is forever. Of the Son, he says that. What it says is that God says to the Son, your throne, O God. Because that is a, a declaration of the godness of the Son, is it not? He says, Therefore, God your God has anointed you and it called you. Your throne, O God, is forever. O God, a term described ascribed to Jesus, the Son. Listen, angels may surround the throne of God, but the Son sits on it. Angels are sent ones. The Son is the anointed one. Verses 10 through 12. He goes on, and another quote. Another thing of the sun, he says, God says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. It sounds like what we read already in chapter one. Laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, so the creation, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your, ears, your years will have no end. It's this role in creation that is now re-emphasized. So it compares creation to garments that go bad, but Jesus doesn't. I remember being a teenager and having an older gentleman say to me, boy, I have underwear older than you. And I remember thinking, bro, I don't have a lot, but I will give you money to let those drawers rest in peace. <laughs> I think it's a funny little analogy that this guy uses, this author, of saying that clothes wear out, right? Even the best of clothes, eventually they wear and tear. And underwear does wear and tear, gentlemen. You need to throw that junk out. <laughs> Creation is like that. Creation wears and tears. This world is deteriorating around us. But that's not true of the Creator. Christ is as fresh and new and pristine as he was when he made light appear in the darkness when he set the sun and moon in their place. He is as fresh and new and powerful and wonderful today and forever as he was when he spoke all things into being. The creator is different than the creation. Verse 13 then says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? You see, angels get up and they are at their posts to serve the sun. The sun has work. His feet are up, and he occupies the throne. That's what we saw back in verse 3, the second part. Talking about he sits at the right hand of the majesty. God never says that the angels have their feet up, ruling and reigning. No, they are sent out, and they are at work. The sun has said it is finished, and he has taken a seat as the mighty, majestic one at the right hand of God. You see, if angels are so splendid... And the Bible's description of them is splendid. Then how much more splendid is the one who designed and made them? 
The messengers are remarkable, but they pale in comparison to the glory of their sender. But this principle, once again, applies to more than angels. Guys, listen, you think a sunset is beautiful? How marvelous is the one who every day paints it? You think the Grand Canyon is vast? How vast are the wonders of the one who dug it? You think the universe is limitless? How limitless is the power of the one telling it where it begins and ends? He's supreme. He's superior in every way. You are right to marvel at those wonders that I just mentioned. We are right to marvel at the wonders of creation. When you see a shooting star, you're right to marvel at that. When you see a tree older than this country, you're right to marvel at that. Heck, you see a a Hail Mary touchdown, you're right to say, wow. You eat the best steak you've ever eaten. It's okay to say, wow. I remember when my first child, our first child was born, Shiloh. I remember hearing her first cry and saying, wow, as tears filled my eyes and said, dude, I just made a person. Because that's amazing. Procreation is a modern miracle that we make people by the grace of God. And we're right to marvel at that. We are right to marvel at creation. But guys, the creator is superior to the creation. Marvel at him. I think we all marvel at some point in our lives. You may have seen some of those amazing wonders of the world that I mentioned just a moment ago, and you said to yourself, wow. You may have tears fill your eyes as you hear your child breathe their first breath, and you're right to marvel at that. But guys, it is a crying shame that we allow ourselves to be so given to matters of creation and withhold our affections from the one who has spoken them into being. That we can say and cheer and shout triumphantly at a stupid TV screen and tame ourselves in this room. How dare you? How dare you do that? Do you know the one who gives breath to your lungs? Not by our behavior, we don't. Guys, we must marvel, marvel, not at the creation, at the creator. And when you see what is marvelous in this world, you remember whose signature's on it. They ascribe improper glory to angels. We ascribe improper glory all over the place and then put our heads on our pillow at the end of the day and say, oh yeah, I forgot to pray today. Oh, I forgot my quiet time again. We come in this room and we got more on our minds, in our lives, in our schedules, the food that's gonna hit our tongues in about an hour. We're thinking about that and not thinking about the amazing wonders of the God that we sing about. How dare we do that? How marvelous, how wonderful. How can we sing those things in vain? I didn't didn't intend to say this. I didn't intend to do this. Before I came up here just to open the word and get to it, you were praying, and I was sobbing. And I'll tell you why. It's because we stink at singing those things we sing about. Me included. Me first. 
What a, a loud chorus of praise that hit our lips. And I think about the angels and the way that they sing it. And I just think, I don't do it like that. I don't do it like that. And that's convicting to me. And I don't think you do it like that either. Guys, if there's one thing that I can ask of you today, we sing that song, Hallelujah. You know what that word means? It's two words. Hallel, Yah. Yah is short for the name of God. Hallel means praise. When you sing that word, you are singing praise God. Do you mean it? Have you marveled at him lately? Have you marveled in here today? Really? Or did the TV get more of your affection than your maker? <clears throat> There's one more verse. And he puts this little cap on the chapter chapters aren't inspired and the numbers that there but there's there's a break in the the flow here and it's this verse after referencing all these passages of scripture finally he says verse 14 are they angels are they not all ministering again the word for deacon servants serving are they not all serving spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation Guys, that's not just the role of angels. That's our role, to serve, to serve our God. It says they're ministering, serving spirits. They're God's workforce looking after human subjects. And I just think that's so cool, man. God's workforce sent out. Angels are sent from God's throne room to work for the good of God's people. Those big old crazy-looking creatures, unseen. Their role, they're instruments of God's judgments. They bring answers to prayer, deliver them, I should say. Observe Christian work, order, and suffering. They encourage in times of danger. They praise God. They worship God. They rejoice in what God does. They serve God, and they win people or aid people in winning people to Christ. God, there are invisible powers at work among us, but once again, the greatest thing that we can learn from angels is their instant, unquestioning, unwavering obedience to God's call. Do we follow that line? Angels aren't worthy of our worship. They're meant to point us to the only one who is. And when John wrote the book of Revelation by the pen of his hand, by the voice of God's Holy Spirit, he had a problem with that. In Revelation 19, 9 and 10, it says this, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I, John, fell down at his feet, the angel, to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Revelation 22, 8 and 9, he echoes it. It's similar. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, this prophecy in the book of Revelation. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and, not, or, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. May we worship God, church. Verse 14 says that the angels do their thing, 
for the sake of those who, to, who are to inherit salvation. It comes from, the, comes from the same root word for heir. To have what's coming to you. That's what it means. Who are to inherit salvation. What that means, church, is that your eternity, if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, if you've come to a point in your life where you say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus did the things that this book says that he did, that he lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death, and I want to give my life to you, your mind. If you have done that, you know what the Bible says? It says that your birthright now, your inheritance, is glory with God, eternity in the presence of the holy. Wow. Your inheritance, your birthright. I don't know about you guys, but I do not feel like I've earned that. And this is where I say, it's because you didn't. That inheritance was earned on your behalf. When Jesus took your place in death, that you may join him in life. Is he superior in your life? Is he superior in your home? Can I just say something? Your kids can tell what is the most important thing in your house. Your kids aren't stupid. They can tell when you treat church or youth ministry or Awana as, as their thing, but not your thing. What do you think is going to happen when they grow up and see that you wanted it to be important for them, but it's not important for you? They're going to go into adulthood and they're going to say, oh, it's not really important. They were just trying to pawn me off for a while to have, some, to have a break. Your kids are not stupid. Dads, they know if you love golf. They know if you love Mississippi State. They know if you love mom. They know if you love Jesus. What are we training them to love? What are we teaching them as superior? As we seek to make him superior, left to ourselves, we will only inherit real judgment, but the son offers a new inheritance. Will you bow your head and close your eyes, please? I'm gonna ask the praise team to join me. We're gonna finish things up today. Man, I don't know, I don't know what God is placing on your heart today. We're right to feel unworthy. We're right to feel that way. But I want to give you a word of encouragement. Your worthiness to approach the holy throne of God is not contingent on your work, on your esteem. It's not contingent on what you've accomplished in your life. It is solely contingent on your faith in the one who has accomplished all things, Christ Jesus. Today, you, you probably feel a, a weight. And the weight is the burden of conviction that we fall short. The weight of conviction that we have not made him truly superior in our lives. And I want to really let that soak in for a moment. Because we should feel that. But I want to remind you of something. And that's that Jesus bore that burden on the cross of Calvary. And so today, I don't leave you 
with a guilt trip. I don't want to leave you with discouragement. There is only encouragement to be beheld as you leave this place today. But I will call you to respond. I will call you to examine your life and see that there are places where you have not made him superior. May we do that today.